Well, this morning's scripture lesson, as I said, comes out of Matthew chapter 28, and we're looking at chapter 28, verses um, 16 through 20. So I invite you all to turn now there with me in your own text. Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Holy God, this time, quiet our minds that we might focus on who you are this morning. Still our hearts, that we may not be distracted from the other things that consume our lives, but we might have full attention dedicated to you. Prepare us to encounter you anew this morning like we never have before, that when we go from this place, we might leave here transformed people ready to transform the world. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be good and pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So the past couple of weeks that I've been with you all have been some of the most fantastic weeks. And and with each sermon, I've been trying to do something really intentional. Okay, so they haven't been just like, oh, here's what Mike is thinking about this week. I do like plan things out. I'm not great at planning. My wife will tell you she's the planner, but I do like to have a plan. In the past couple of weeks, I've been kind of laying out a little foundation that I think will really support our growth in ministry uh, moving forward. And so the first week we talked about love and how love should be our baseline as a church, as a people, and how that is our guiding factor. Second week we talked about uh, belongingness and being a community where all people can feel like they belong here because that is what uh, Jesus' ministry to all people was about, letting them know that they have a place to belong. Last week was a little bit different and maybe uncomfortable. We talked about how you might be wrong. And I brought brought that message into, into the fray because I think there are many times that we get stuck in who we are because we just kind of cling to these notions and ideas that just aren't fruitful and they don't take us anywhere. And so the idea that we might be wrong allows us to consider that we can think other ways. We can look uh, beyond where we just might have been stuck for that amount of time. And today I want to take a a new concept that's actually as ancient as ancient of days goes. This notion of going. Because you see, the story of our faith is one of movement and activity. The story of our faith being not just 
the time of our lives that we've been here on earth, not just the history of the church or the time in which people have known about Jesus, not even just, you know, as far back as, as the Jewish faith goes, but till the beginning of time, or at least as far back as our holy text allows us to, to witness, our faith, the story of our faith has been one of movement and activity. And I say that because of the word faith. Now, faith is a curious word, right? People, people think that, uh, that faith kind of means belief. And that's not entirely wrong. Faith does have an aspect of belief to it. But belief isn't quite what the word faith is getting at. Belief is all well and good. You need to believe in something to have direction, to have motivation. But faith itself is something far more. So in the Greek, you know, you're going to have a Greek lesson this morning. In the Greek, there are two words that we end up translating as faith. There's fides, which is more appropriately the word belief. And then there is fiducia. And fiducia is more commonly, whenever you see uh, authors in scripture writing about faith, they're using this word fiducia, which is in fact a verb. It's, 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 it's funny, in seminary we talk about how you can't have faith. It, it grammatically doesn't make sense. Try saying, I have run, or I have walk, or I have talk. It, it doesn't make sense. You hear that and you're like, I don't think he knows how to speak anymore. It, it doesn't make sense to say you have a verb. You can do a verb, but you can't have it. So to have faith is kind of redundant, and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, a little more next week, but faith is a verb. In fact, that word fiducia translates most directly as trust in action. Trust in action. And, and I, I bring this up not as our focus, but as a launching point, because the story of our faith is one of movement and activity. Our God is a God of movement and activity. Uh, there is there's this, I think there's this idea out there that people think, you know, God just kind of put the world into motion, these, you know, days of creation and whatnot, and then kind of just sits back and likes to watch and see what happens. Um, personally, that sounds like a sick, cruel God. <laughs> that sounds pretty horrible if God were to just kind of throw things into motion and then watch all the chaos unfold. God is a God of, of action and activity, a God who, who quite literally got into the dirt with us. God is a God of action. Our faith is about action. And to, to kind of build up my point a little more here, because I want you to be able to believe me in what I'm saying, the word go in all of its derivations shows up in the Bible roughly 1,542 times, depending on your translation. 1,542 times-ish. On the contrary, the word stay only shows up 64 times. 64 times compared to 1,542 times. If it, if it hasn't become obvious yet that our faith is about action and movement, let me take it a step even further, okay? We're gonna go back to the time of Abraham. And uh, Abraham is this considered the father of our faith. And, you know, you, you have the song, Father Abraham had many sons, and, you know, all that, and there's, there's dancing to it and everything. Father Abraham is, like, the baseline of the Jewish and then eventually the Christian faith. And it all started because one day, 
God shows up to Abraham, and I'm pretty jealous. God doesn't speak to me or show up to me as audibly as with Abraham, but shows up to Abraham and tells him just this. Go. Go from this place which you have been living to a land which I will show you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then, you know, go on through a conversation. But the whole point is the entirety of Jewish and then eventually Christian faith began with this moment in which God told Abraham to go. And then Abraham says, well, yeah, of course, I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to do. And Abraham gets up and goes. A couple hundred years down the road, we encounter Moses. And Moses is this person who gets adopted into Egyptian royalty and then uh, eventually, because of his actions, gets cast out from there and encounters God in the wilderness. And God tells Moses to return to the people and then lead them out of slavery to a land which I will show you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, we heard that back with Abraham again. Once again, God is telling Moses to take his people and go. Go somewhere different. Be somewhere else. Be in activity. Be in motion. Now, a couple hundred years after that, we encounter the, the Israelite nation. And they go through all kinds of chaos. And eventually they get exiled out of their own land and are dispersed throughout, uh, throughout the region and into these foreign lands. And it is because of that that the concept of this God, whom we profess as God, the Jewish God at the time, that this notion of God gets dispersed beyond just the nation of Israel. Because the people were not just staying in one place. We then get to Jesus. And I'm skipping a whole bunch of the Bible, mind you, where people are constantly on the move. We then get to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't stay in one place. He even tells people, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's always on the move, trying to get to the next person and the next person, because he knows that movement and action and going is the only way that he can actually get to those people. He didn't have Facebook or, uh, or Instagram or Snapchat or any of these other social media connections. He had to actually go. We then get to the establishment of the church, and the church is called to be the community of grace and hope and love for all peoples to the ends of the earth. And they are called out of just simply being in Jerusalem, and they end up spreading like wildfire across the earth. A few hundred years later, we get to this, this dude named John Wesley, and he's a pretty big guy in the United Methodist Church. He kind of started the whole Methodist and holiness movement. And, and he recognized that one of the worst things for the gospel was for it to be kept in just one place. And so he adapted this idea called itineracy, which pastors in the United Methodist Church still go through today. If uh, whenever there's a new, whenever a pastor moves and a new pastor comes in, it's because of this notion that pastors are called to be on the move and giving an example to the church about being on the move, going to more than just one place and not staying still. I bring up all of these points here this morning because I want to make very certain that we understand how detrimental stagnation is to the church. Stagnation, this, this that, that there is inaction no activity happening, no life happening. Stagnation is indeed the greatest threat to the church. 
people all over will tell you, well, the greatest threat to the church is this, or you know, like Scientology, or social media, or the youth are the greatest threat to the church. Oh, I've heard that before, believe it or not. That's not true. Um, but the people will tell you all over the place what they think the greatest threat to the church is. And I'll tell you right now, with 100% certainty, they are all wrong. The greatest threat to the church is stagnation, that the church would stop being a people of action, that the church would stop being in motion. I love this quote from Frederick Douglass, who is just a, an absolute brilliant person. I encourage anybody to read his biography too. I mean, absolutely brilliant. But Frederick Douglass in one of his speeches called Self-Made Men says this, inaction is followed by stagnation. Stagnation is followed by pestilence. And pestilence is followed by death. And a couple of lines down, he says, therefore, work, work, work. The notion here is that the only way that the church can continue to be the church and to thrive and be an active part of the community is that the church goes and does something, that it doesn't just sit where it is. Okay, so, so what I'm trying to say is, is that the church, any church that becomes complacent forgets even what it means to be the church. Any church that grows complacent forgets what it means to be the church. And now I'm going to press this a little further. I'm going to try to make us a little uncomfortable. But before I do, I want a little disclaimer here. In, these next, in, in this entire sermon, I'm not speaking about Spring Hill Avenue United Methodist Church. I have seen life in action in this church in just a month of being here, and it's beautiful. I'm giving this sermon more as a warning or as, 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 uh, to keep in our minds that we are supposed to be doing more. And so I go on, the church that speaks of action but never acts declares their apathy toward both God and humanity. And I'll take that one step further. The church that refuses change and disregards movement is like a stagnant pond, an illusion of refreshment that breeds weeds, parasites, and disease. I do not apologize for that statement because I have seen that true in many communities that a church that doesn't want to go anywhere becomes the bane of that community's existence. They're just, not only are they not helpful, they begin to actually be a horrible presence in that community. The church is called to action. We are called to activity and movement and momentum. In fact, Jesus at every step of his ministry is constantly calling the people to do something, to actually be a people who get out there and be a part of life. See, the sidelines are safe, but the field is where it matters. We're getting close to football season, and I can't wait for all the football analogies that I'm going to be able to use in sermons. So I'm starting a little early. Those who sit in the stands or behind the TV watching the game do not have an impact on it. 
No matter what superstitions you might have in believing that you can impact the game because you're sitting in your perfect chair facing a certain direction, wearing that shirt that has all the grease stains on it because you've won it at every winning game and, and you have your, your towel that you got at the very first game you attended and, and even though it's, you're an Alabama fan and they're going to win no matter what, you still think that you're making an impact on the game. The people who sit in the stands or behind their TVs have no impact on the game. It's those who get into the mess of it that have any hope of making a difference in the game. It's those who are actually on the field, those who are committed to being a part of this. They are the ones that do it. The sidelines are safe, but they don't change anything. The, the sidelines are easy, but they don't make any difference. The sidelines may be comfortable, especially if you have a box seat. It may be comfortable, but it's not going to impact the outcome of the game. Jesus calls us to do something because only by doing something can we make any difference in the world around us. And Jesus leads by example. You see, Jesus was always on the move to get to the people who needed hope and love the most. Jesus was always on the move to get to the poor and the lonely and the sick and the differently abled. Jesus was always on the move to get to the sinners, the broken, the outcast, and the unloved. Jesus was on the move as an act of humble compassion, as a statement declaring, you are worth my time. You are worth my effort. You are worth my love. Jesus was a person always on the move because being on the move was how he knew he could get stuff done. Jesus, in that same vein, everywhere he went, did not just perform signs and miracles to try to convince people of his divinity. That's, that wasn't any of the purpose of why Jesus did all these miraculous things. Jesus wasn't going about, you know, performing all these magic tricks so people would believe that he was an incredible person. Jesus wasn't doing all of these miracles, healing people, because he wanted people to, to recognize that he was indeed God incarnate. Jesus could have done something much more, uh, much more massive to convince people of that, you know, sky riding or something like that, actually telling a mountain to jump into the sea. Jesus could have done something as incredible as that to convince people, but that's not why he did all of the things that he did. He was on the move, and he was helping people and performing signs and miracles because everywhere he went, he encountered people in need. The same is true of our community. We find ourselves wherever we are. It doesn't matter how perfect the neighborhood might be or how perfect the city or state might be. There are people in need all around. And Jesus is calling us to go to do something because... That's the only way to get to the people in need. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I hear, echoing throughout generations, God's cry in front of Isaiah. And if, you, if you're not familiar with this, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, uh, Isaiah is, finds himself before the throne of God, and God is crying out, whether Isaiah hears it or not, God is crying out, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
And I hear that echoing throughout all of eternity, throughout generation to generation, that that cry of God, whom shall I send and who will go? Who will be the people who actually get off their tails and start moving somewhere? Friends, we cannot expect our work to get done waiting for someone else to do it for us. One of the easiest things, uh, easiest ways that churches begin to become places of stagnation, or one of the easiest ways Christians become people of inaction, is by something in psychology called the bystander effect. And the, it's, this, it's this fascinating phenomenon that people kind of have this notion that somebody else will take care of it for them. The classic uh, experiment they run is if a, if a a person, people are walking by this dark alley and they can clearly see that somebody is being robbed in that dark alley, 99 times out of 100, nobody does anything about that robbery because people have this notion that it's not my problem and surely someone else will do something about it. And the church has a similar thing. We look out at, at our community and we see the needs. They can be very evident. Sometimes they take a little digging, but we see the needs. We know what we can be doing, but we think, well... Somebody else can take care of that. Somebody who may be better at it or has more resources. Somebody who's not us or not me because that would be hard. We are called to action. We are called to go. Because if we don't, then who will? The truth is the bystander effect is one of the greatest lies we tell ourselves. That somebody else will do it if we don't. If we don't go, then what happens to the least, the lost, and the unloved? If we don't go, then what is the point of us as a church? Because that is the entire mission of the church. The mission of the United Methodist Church as a whole is to make disciples, for the tr- to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And guess what? The world doesn't get transformed by coming to church on, on Sundays and special holidays and sitting in, in that pew and listening to what you hope will be a feel-good sermon and then you realize it's me talking and I don't like giving feel-good sermons all that often and, and thinking that that's all that matters. The world gets transformed when we go whenever we start stepping around, whenever we get into motion, in whatever capacity we may be able to, and I promise you that each and every person is able to give in some capacity, that each and every person is able to go in some capacity. And we'll talk about this more next week. I'm really excited for next week. Tell all of your friends to be here next week and the week after because the bishop will be here, but also next week. We are called to be a part of something greater than ourselves. We are. Earlier, um, Ms. Francis read for us from Ruth chapter 1, and, and the story of Ruth is probably one of the most incredible, heartfelt stories in all of Scripture, uh, uh, this notion of, uh, of, of connection and compassion. You see, the heart of Ruth is one of commitment to something more than her own life or even her own people. Ruth is a person who... Uh, married into the family of Naomi. She married Naomi's son, along with Orpah, who uh, was the other daughter-in-law of Naomi. And, and then all of a sudden, Naomi's sons, the husbands of, of Ruth and Orpah, die. Like, just out of the blue, they just die. And Naomi tells her daughters-in-law, 
Go back to your, to, to your homes. Return to the, to the house of your mother because at least there, there might be something waiting for you. And they say, no, we will stay with you. We will cling to you. And, and she gets really real with her daughters-in-law. And I think this was a really hard conversation for her to have. She says, look, I've got nothing left to give. I can't give you more sons. Even if I were to remarry right now, would you really wait around for those sons to grow up and, and then marry them? She says, if you stick with me, you have nothing. Go back to your homes and find something for yourself. And Ruth tells her, that's not an option. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Ruth was not an Israelite. She, was, she wasn't from that same clan. She recognized within herself this commitment to more than just her own life or even to her own people. She recognized her heart as being committed to those in need. A couple of years ago, uh, Christian artist uh, Chris Tomlin wrote a song based off of this passage in, in Ruth. This, and the lyrics say, Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I will move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I will love. How you serve, I will serve. If this life I will lose, I will follow you. Earlier, whenever we had the children's moment, I wanted to do that little follow the leader example to see that nothing, that you can't actually follow Jesus if you're just going to sit there. You can't actually be a part of the mission of Christ in the world if you just want life to be easy, if I just want life to be comfortable, if I think that, that if I just sit here, somebody else will follow Jesus and that will be enough, or I can follow Jesus from my pew and that's enough. Jesus is always on the move and calls us to be on the move. But Jesus doesn't just leave us at that. And I love this. The, probably one of the most impactful parts of this, the Great Commission, that's what this section of Matthew is titled, the Great Commission. One of the most impactful parts to me is at the very end. Jesus says, and remember, I am with you always till the end of the age. I am with you. We don't go alone. It's important for us to remember, whenever we're called to go, we don't go alone. First, wherever we go, we have to recognize that Christ is already there before we get there, and Christ will be there long after we leave. Second, the beauty of the church is that the church is not one person. The church is a community. The church is not one person who is sent to the community to be there for the community. The church is a community who is sent to the community to be there for the community. And with that in mind, we recognize that when we go, we all go together. We do this together. We don't do this alone. Our call to action is not something that we do in isolation. As we go, we have a companion in one another and perhaps most importantly, we have a companion in Christ, the one who ensures that the path is paved for us, our front and rear guard. So, as I like to do at the end of any good sermon, I want to leave us all with a question, for myself included, something to think about throughout the week. And my question for us all today is, if you were to start today, what would it look like for you to be a person who goes. Or perhaps even better, if we were to start right now, 
in this very moment, if we were to start right now, what would it look like for us to become a people who go? Because that is our charge, that is our call, to be a people of action and activity. The world isn't going to just magically transform itself through the love of, in, into the love of Christ without people who go. There's another song that, uh, I can't even remember the artist of it now, I feel like it was Matt Mayer or Matt Red, some Matt guy, wrote a song that's, uh, and the, the, the premise behind it was, we look around and we see all of these hardships and we wonder why God isn't doing anything, why God isn't active. And the chorus says, God put a million, million doors in this world for his love to walk through. And one of those doors is you. God calls us to go, to be vessels of love, to be there for the community, to be there for the people who don't have people. God calls us to action, to go. So my encouragement for each and every one of us is from this moment forward, we become a people of action instead of stagnation. That we become a people of movement and momentum rather than a people who wait for something to happen around us. That we become a people who take charge and start leading the community around us toward the love of Christ. The sidelines are comfortable, but the field is where it matters. So let us go and let us pray together. Holy God, it is so easy for us to become comfortable and complacent where we are, to think that we are doing the most we can be doing by sitting still. But continue to inspire with us that same energy which is within children, that energy to move, that energy to be on the move and to go and to be going that we might not see your church fall apart, but rather might see its growth and commitment in the community because we are a people who go. And as we consider what it means to go and to be there for the community, we lift up to you our prayers for our brothers and sisters across the globe as well as those right next door to us. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Europe that are continuing to endure the after effects of a tragic heat wave. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong and Russia who are part of protests, some which have turned violent. We pray for our brothers and sisters in China, those who have been impacted by a mudslide that has taken so many lives. We pray for the people in our community, those who might be sitting next to us or those whom we might be meeting for lunch, those whom we think we know but might be going through so much more than we could ever imagine. And we pray also for ourselves, for we too are a people in need, in need of your love, in need of your grace, in need of your peace. So tend to each and every one of us, your children, according to your good and perfect will, that we might go forth from this place to be a people who declare your goodness and your will on earth. We lift up all of these prayers to you with an eagerness to go and to constantly be in pursuit of you. As we pray together also that prayer which you taught your disciples and us to pray by saying, Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.